Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the manifold blessings that you have given to us and this word that we have to saturate ourselves in today. Help us, God, to understand and apply. Help us to know and do by the power of your spirit what we look at today and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Ooh, sorry, I don't do that anymore. I'm reformed. 9-1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. That's that innocuous enough, right? So we had finished last week with the author of Hebrews saying that the old covenant was becoming obsolete and growing old and was ready to vanish away. And that reason was becoming... Uh, and uh, I messed up something there. Okay, okay. And the reason was because God had promised in Jeremiah's time to make a new covenant with his people, which was for a time to come, which the author of Hebrews says was established. This new covenant was established in and through the work of Jesus, our great high priest. So that old covenant, having been fulfilled, obsolete, growing old, we don't need it anymore because there's been a new covenant established which God announced beforehand would happen. Well, the writer is going to spend a little bit of time today looking back at the old covenant, how it worked, what it looked like, with a special glance at the furnishings and the layout of them in the tabernacle and or temple. And he's going to focus on the tabernacle because he talks about a tent. And from verse 1 down to verse 10 today, he's going to show that this layout was natural, earthly, and thus ineffective to truly deal with sin. But guess who could and did deal with sin? Well, again, the whole point of this whole book, this whole book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is better than so many and so, well, every, everything and everybody else, including the old covenant, including these old furnishings and these old arrangements. So, uh, yeah, Jesus, our great high priest, is better and can deal with sin. And he's going to show that in verses 11 and 14, how Jesus dealt with our sins not in an earthly tent or temple, but in heaven, in the true, real, holy of holies, which these earthly items were mere shadows and copies of, which is what we saw last week. And again, I just want to keep reiterating that this guy keeps reiterating things. Okay? He, you say, well, this sounds a whole lot like what we talked about last week and the week before, and it does. And that's on purpose. And it's really hard to break these passages up because they are... I mean, literally, chapter 4 to chapter 10 is one big, long thought. But he keeps coming back, and he's like, now look at this, and when you see this again in light of this, oh, it's again, it's just like it's, it's multiplying, it's amplifying, it's growing, and, and it's like he's zooming in the microscope to see, even, more like a telescope. He's not looking at small things, he's looking at big things. And he's making them, we're seeing them bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's what's going on here. So you will hear a lot of things that we've already talked about last week, but you're going to see it in a way today that is so incredibly powerful. And he just really brings the right hook um, at the end of this. And it's worth the work. That's, that's what I want to say. So as we, re- as we reiterate what he's reiterating, it's really good. So 
Um, Jesus could not hurt the people. There we go. But back to verse 1 here. Um, Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. So the first covenant, the old covenant of law and sacrifices that God instituted with his people, had regulations for worship. And that word regulations, and this is important, implies that what's being handed down or said has legal consequences. Okay? Strong says, that which has been deemed right so as to have force of law. Regulations is speaking of the law side of the worship. If the worship wasn't conducted as prescribed, there would be repercussions, both civil and religious judgment against somebody if they didn't keep these regulations. Okay, Hence, it is referred to as the law. Right? Because there's legal repercussions. Even the form of worship was legally enforced. Let me tell you what. If anybody would have wandered into the holy place that was not a priest, there would have been repercussions. They probably would have been stoned. So that's what he's talking about here. Even the old covenant had regulations. Okay? And don't miss the word here. The first covenant also had an earthly place of holiness. That word earthly is important to understand here. The writer has been contrasting the work of natural, mere human high priests through the years doing their work under the law with man-made implements and structures here on earth. And he's been contrasting that with the work of Jesus, the God-man, doing what he did in heaven in the true holy of holies which God made. So that first covenant took place on the earth. In an earthly place. You're like, well, yeah, duh. But don't miss the duh. The the duh is important here. All this stuff in the Old Covenant happened in an earthly place. It's an emphasis on the natural versus the supernatural. Earth versus heaven. And this earthly place did have a place of holiness. And that word for holiness is hagion. Strong's again says that hagion or holiness means of things which on account of some connection with God possess a certain distinction and claim to reverence as places sacred to God which are not to be profaned. So this earthly tent, this earthly place, had a place of holiness set apart sacred to God which was not to be profaned. So it was a natural earthly place, but even that created man-made place had a sacred place, a place with a connection to God. And God said He would dwell there, set apart for God and His presence and His purposes. Now verse 2 gives us some more details of this earthly holy place. For a tent was prepared... Uh, for, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which, were, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. So when the order of things was being described for the furnishings of the tabernacle, God given this directly to Moses. He said, have a tent made. And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago in passing. Exodus 25, 8 and 9. And let them make me, God says, a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So I got a picture here, and this, I don't know how how much of this you'll be able to see. Um, And we'll go into that inner tent in a minute in a different picture. Um, And if if you look, you got the outer court marked off by that outer wall, that outer um, covering 
curtain type thing. You got the outer court. Um, and then you've got that tent inside of it. Now that whole tent is the holy place. And there's a curtain inside there where the most holy places. We'll get into that in a second. But just want you to be able to kind of see what, what's going on here. Okay? Kind of get a visual. That court, that outside place where you see the animal there and those slaughter tables and the bronze laver and the brazen altar, anybody could come into that place that had an offering. Anybody could come in and, and observe what was going on there. Okay? Any, well, any Israelite, any person that, that was of the nation of Israel, they could come in and they could bring an offering and they could watch the offerings being made they could observe. Uh, the animals and the other offerings would be placed on the altar, that first thing there, with, you can kind of see the fire on it. They'd be placed on the altar and burned with blood being poured out and splashed and sprinkled on that big altar in that outer court there. The bronze laver, which is behind a little pot of water you see there, uh, that was in place for the priests to continually cleanse themselves as they did this bloody, messy work of offering these sacrifices on the altar. And again, the, the writer of Hebrews doesn't mention this outer court at all. He's concerned with the earthly holy place, which would have been inside that court, that tent in the midst of the court, and only the priests could enter into it. And here's kind of a blow-up of kind of what that looks like. Don't know that this is the scale, by the way. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. That's a really big candlestick. Um, but, yeah, anyway, doesn't matter. Um, so this is that inner tent, the, the, the holier place, the holy of holies, uh, very holy place. So again, we're going to be looking at both of these things, particularly this inner tent here. Um, so that tent had two sections. The first, the author says, is called the holy place. Now, where you see the candlestick, that table, and then the, the incense altar, that's the holy place. Okay, that's what he's talking about. That's the first section of the tent. In that first section, there was a lampstand and the table and the bread which contained and held the bread of the presence. Now, our picture here, again, don't pay too much attention to scale. We'll talk about some measurements in a second. But the first thing mentioned in the holy place by the author of Hebrews is the lampstand. God told Moses to make it of one piece. So this is one big piece of gold, hammered gold. Okay? It was to have one candle holder in the middle with three branches on each side of that middle one. And there are very intricate instructions on what it was to look like in Exodus 25. You can look at that if you want to. We're not going to go there. And you may have heard it called a what? Menorah. Why would, you, why would we say that? That's the Hebrew word for lamp. Okay? That's, why, that's why we've heard the word menorah. Um, and God said that this lampstand was there to be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it in Exodus 25. The author of Hebrews then points out that along with the lampstand in the holy place, there was also the table and the bread of the presence. Now, unlike the lampstand, the Lord gives specific dimensions for this table in Exodus 25, 23. It's to be made of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. Now, one cubit is about a foot and a half. 18 inches. So that's in our West Virginia talk. Three feet long, a foot and a half wide, and a foot and a half high. That's how big the table was. It was to be overlaid with gold and have rings of gold on its corners for poles to go through to carry it. Now remember, it's in the holy place. It wasn't meant to be touched by human hands outside of priests. And they moved this tabernacle all through the wilderness, all through the desert as they moved, so common people couldn't just come in and pick up the furniture and walk with it. They were holy. 
They were set apart for God. They were sacred. And again, there were legal and uh, civil and religious repercussions to touching the holy things. Remember the account of Uzzah in David's time? He just put his hand to steady the ark. He falls dead. That's why there were rings and poles so that these things didn't get touched because they were holy. Okay, And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate here. How to have the poles. And it's in the holy place to hold what God calls the bread of the presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. The bread was placed on the table every Sabbath. Alexander McLaren says this. Every Sabbath, the priest laid upon the table, which stood on one side of the altar of incense, in the inner court, two piles of loaves, on on each of which piles was placed a pan of incense. They lay there for a week, being replaced by fresh ones on the coming Sabbath. Okay, now why? Well, literally, it was bread that was laid out in the presence of God. That's what's called the bread of the presence in the holy place. And again, why? Leviticus 24, 5 to 9. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings of perpetual due. What that basically means is the bread was there as an offering to God. God didn't eat it because God don't eat bread. Okay, He didn't eat his spirit. And it was also a provision for the priests to eat as well, a holy offering that was given to them to eat as well. Why? Because God sits so. Okay? Now, let's go behind the next curtain, verses 3 and 4. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And so what he's referring to here is that intersection. You see the, the presence of God uh, represented by, I don't know what they would call that. It is you know, it's a, a pillar and you see it coming up out of the middle of the angel's wings there. It, back by that, They've got that curtain kind of peeled back so we can see. But that curtain was there and separated all the time. Again, this is the most holy place. So you got the holy place and then the most holy place. Only the priest could come in here and only the high priest could come once a year into the most holy place. We'll get to that in a second. Um, so as we come into this place, we see that there's... And this is kind of tricky. The earthly tent had a holy place and the most holy place. Behind the second curtain, which was inside the holy place, we had this second section. Now, the author of Hebrews says that the golden altar of incense was in that holy of holies. Now, the instructions to Moses in Exodus and Leviticus have it not in the holy of holies, but in the holy place. So what's this? Is this an error? Did the writer of Hebrews mess up? Oh, shoot. For all perpetuity, they've got my mistake in the holy scriptures. Is it an error? You've got to be able to answer that question. Are there errors in the Bible? Thank you. So is this an error? No. Okay. Is this in the Bible? Yes. Are there errors in the Bible? No. Is this an error? No. Okay. 
So listen, when you approach things like this and you say, well, this must be an error, fix your thinking and come back and say, well, what, what's going on here? Because I know it's not an error, so then explain this to me. If, if the Bible says that the altar of incense was in the holy place, not the most holy place, why would the writer of Hebrews say it was in the most holy place? Because it wasn't there. And that's important because somebody might ask you that question. Let me tell you what, atheists love this because they think they got you, right? People trying to disprove the Bible. This is an error because look, it says in Leviticus and in Exodus that that was not in the Holy of Holies, but the writer of Hebrews says it was in the Holy of Holies. It's not a big deal, but it's important that we address it, right? Sigurd Grindheim in the Pillar Commentary on Hebrews says this, quote, The inclusion of the golden incense altar is a curious one as the instructions for the tabernacle place this altar in the outer chamber, the holy place in Exodus and Leviticus. Things appear to have been different in Solomon's temple in which the incense altar is said to have belonged in the inner sanctuary, 1 Kings 6. And then he says, This information is of little relevance to Hebrews, however, as the letter focuses on the tabernacle and shows no interest in the temple. More significant, and here you go, now check this out, is the evidence from apocalyptic writings, writings about the end times, that the incense altar was associated with the most holy place. When you look at Revelation 8, when you look at Revelation 9, and it talks about the true holy of holies, there's an incense altar before God. Okay? So it's like the writer of Hebrews knows all of this and knows that at times that altar of incense has been in the holy of holies in Solomon's temple and also in heaven. So he includes it in there because the design of things, this is how it can be. So it's not an error. He's just kind of mashing things up. Okay? So the references to the incense altar being in the Holy of Holies in different places is referenced to be in the Holy of Holies in different places. So the author's not just messing up. That altar was for burning incense as a sweet smell. Why? Because God likes things that smell good. Now keep in mind where this tabernacle was. Alright? Here's a nomadic tribe of shepherds in the middle of the desert. You figure it smelled good there? No. It stunk. And they're killing animals. And there's blood and it's a mess. And they want to separate the stench from the presence of God. Okay, so let's, God says burn incense. I don't want it stinking where I'm at. Why? Because I'm holy. He tells them to cover up their excrement in Leviticus. Why? Because I walk in your midst and things are to be holy and I am holy and you're to treat me as holy and I want you to know that where I am, the presence where I am is sanctified, set apart. It's sacred, it's holy and it shouldn't stink. So that incense was burnt perpetually as a sweet smell separating God's presence from the stink of everyday life of a nomadic group of shepherds wandering through the desert. Incense is also referred to in the Bible a few times in relation to prayer, Revelation 5.8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So it's like there's a perpetual offering of prayers before God as well. Here in the Holy of Holies, you best not waltz into God's presence without praying. Right? Incense signifies that. 
Because next we see the most holy place held the Ark of the Covenant. This golden box signified the very presence of God to God's people. He said He would dwell there above the ark, between the wings of the cherubim on its lid. In that ark are three items, a golden urn of manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, which was the law of God. You can see the accounts of these items being placed in the ark in Exodus 16, Exodus 25, and number 17. Again, we have not time to address that, which is exactly what our author says in the next verse. Hebrews 9, 5. If I can find it. There it is. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I've probably already said too much, okay? Because he's like, we don't have time about this. After telling of the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, the writer says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Anywho, you can see the angels with their wings cast over the ark in the picture. And that area was called the mercy seat. We sang last week, thy mercy seat is open still. And that mercy seat is the place where God sat, dwelled in His Shekinah glory among His people. But it was a very select group of human beings who saw any of this. Verses 6 and 7. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, priests, plural, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, the second section, that most holy place, Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now we've talked about this several times over the past week, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here today. But the writer is reiterating, after giving the physical materials of the holy place and the most holy place, what happened in there with these items. Preparations, regularly, performing ritual duties. Do you feel the day-to-day of this? And that's the point. Over and over, day by day, lighting candles, preparing and placing and burning incense, week by week, bread in, bread out. All these priests doing this time and time again. Nine to five, what a way to make a living. That's kind of the thought and the feeling here. It's just earthly places, earthly things being done. By priests who had been set apart by God for the purposes of God, but it was time to make the donuts Monday morning. Six on this side, six on this side. And I'm being facetious, but it, this, this day by day, and again, just look, at, look into it. Preparations, regularly, ritual duties, once a year. I mean, just kind of like these things, let's just do these things to get them done because that's what we're supposed to do. All these priests doing this time and time and time and time and time and time again. Day by day, week by week, year by year. Once a year, one of them goes into the inner veil with fear and trembling, offering blood for themselves and for, it's funny, it's the unintentional sins of the people. Why is this unintentional? Because they're supposed to bring offerings for the intentional sins, sins, sins that they know about. They're supposed to have already dealt with those in sin offerings. But you know they committed more sin than they were aware of, so the priest comes in and says, all these sins, the ones that have been addressed, the ones that haven't been addressed, mine, theirs, year by year, into the inner veil with fear and trembling, offering blood for himself and for the people over and over, year by year, time and time again. And listen, and that work was never finished. That's the point. Verses 8 to 10. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. This guy is 
giving us incredible biblical exegesis here, by the way. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drinks and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. That's not talking about Luther and then boys, it's a different Reformation. Now obviously this is a huge couple of sentences. The author uses the words of the law given by God. He attributes those words to the Holy Spirit, which is of course proper. The God-breathed Word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, which we've pointed out time and time again, which is confirmed in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and that includes the law. The Holy Spirit breathed out the law. The same word for spirit is the same word for breath. Ruach. In the, in the Hebrew. It's the same word. God breathed. The Spirit of God. The Word was spoken. And so the law is breathed out by God. It's the breath, the Spirit of God that spoke this law out. And the Holy Spirit indicates through these words that in this present age, the readers of this epistle see the access into the true heavenly places not opened as they look at a tent that even they can't go into. And so, what goes on in this tent, in the holy place and the most holy place, the gifts and the sacrifices the priests are making in there, cannot perfect the conscience of those worshiping there. What's going on with the lampstand, the table, the bread, the incense, the ark, and even the yearly sin offering in the presence of God there, none of it can truly take away the sins of the people that the offering is being made for those worshipers still live with a daily awareness of their sinfulness, their inability to keep the law, their need for rituals that will at least give them pictures through food, drink, washings and regulations for the body of what they truly need, which will only come after a reformation of it all, a new covenant being established. And the author points out that the major emphasis here is that those things could not perfect what? The conscience of the worshiper. And do not miss that. That's really the main thing that we're going to focus on today. That word conscience. That which distinguishes between what is morally good and bad, prompting a person to do the former, which is the morally good, and shun the latter, the morally bad, commending one and condemning the other. That's what the conscience is. It's, it's that voice on the inside that says this is morally right, this is morally wrong. Do the morally right, don't do the morally wrong. And note that the conscience is to prompt its owner to do what is morally good and to shun what is morally bad. And the old covenant could not perfect, could not make the conscience help us choose to do what we're supposed to do. It couldn't do that. The old covenant couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. These old covenant worshipers could not have their conscience perfected by signs, symbols, and rituals day by day, week by week, year by year. They need fulfillment of all these signs and symbols and rituals. Oh no, whatever shall we do? 
A better question is, whatever shall God do? And we see that in verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We need to do a few laps after that one, y'all. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Gospel. What a hope we have. You just got to love when a sentence starts with, but when Christ appeared. The physical way, the old covenant in a man-made tent had no way to redeem anyone. But when Christ appeared, and He didn't just show up and say, well, I'm here. He came as what? He came as a high priest of the good things that have come. Yeah, boy. We said last week that this new covenant is so much better in so many ways to the old covenant. The author of Hebrews says it's far superior. And Jesus is the high priest, the intermediary between God and man that brought about these good things that are graciously given to us in this new covenant. He is, if you'll remember, the guarantor of this better covenant. And when He appeared as that high priest... Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not by means of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood. So Jesus went into the holy places in heaven. Now this happened. This is real. This is not some ethereal, mysterious story, myth, that somebody made up so we could feel better about ourselves. This happened at a point in history, at a point in eternity, if there are points in eternity. Jesus went into the holy places where God is and He offered His own blood to redeem His people. The blood that He had shed. Not animal blood. His own blood. And through that offering of His own blood, what did He secure? It says that He secured an eternal redemption. And it really doesn't get any bigger, better, or more amazing than that right there. Redemption is a word we hear so much, but we don't think enough about it. The Bible since lexicon defines redemption as salvation understood in terms of a redemptive act especially understood as the buying back of a person affected through the death of Christ from the merited penalty of sin. Now, I need to read that again. Redemption is salvation understood in terms of a redemptive act, especially understood as the buying back of a person affected through the death of Christ from the merited penalty of sin. We, His people, are the redeemed objects. The blood and death of Christ is the payment and the penalty of sin was our previous owner. And who is to mete out that penalty for sin? God is. God saved us from His own wrath when Jesus presented His blood in the heavenly holy of holies. Jesus did that for us. Once your enemy... 
Now seated at your table. And again, Jesus did that for us in heaven, offering His blood to God on the mercy seat, the true mercy seat, thus fulfilling all that had been foreshadowed for all those old covenant years. All those animals, all those offerings, all that blood, finally and fully realized through the shed blood of the God-man, God the Son, our great high priest, Jesus the Christ. Thus, thus, securing our eternal redemption. There are people that hate that word secure. Oh, God have mercy on us all. Eternally securing our redemption. Do you believe in eternal security? Yeah, I do. Because the Bible does. Yeah, but yeah, but you can take your yeah buts to the dump. Securing our eternal redemption. Who did that? Jesus did that. How did he do that? By offering his own blood to whom? To God, who should justly be wrathful against us, but that wrath has been assuaged now. Thus securing our eternal redemption. Wow! And we still have two more verses to look at. We ain't done yet. Four. Oh my goodness. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, if that's true, and it was, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God how much more will that blood purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God yeah yeah all the oxygen should disappear from this sanctuary sorry it's not a sanctuary this auditorium when we read that we should go (gasps) what a sentence The four at the beginning indicates that he's just responding to what he had just said. That Jesus had secured our eternal redemption by offering his own blood in the true heavenly holy of holies. For, so, if this, then this. Jesus secured our redemption by his own blood. For, if the blood of bulls and goats and the the shrinking, (laughs) shrinking, sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So this points to the fact that all of that old covenant ritual and work was only able to go skin deep in what it could do for the one observing it. It was literally just able to do what the senses could take in. Blood and ashes held, sprinkled, smeared, seen, smelled, touched, and that's all they could do. That didn't penetrate the skin, so to speak. What you saw was what you got. We got blood and ashes. And the author says that it did sanctify for the purification of the flesh. That happened. It did accomplish that. But... That's contrasted here with what Jesus did in offering His blood in the true Holy of Holies. If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers can sanctify for the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? W-0-W. 
Exclamation point. Wow! If animal blood and ashes offered by men in a tent had some God-designed effect, how much more effect would then the blood of Christ have? And not just the fact that it was the blood of Christ, which is significant in and of itself. The blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God without blemish, was offered by Jesus through the eternal Spirit to God. And again, we and the Bible are Trinitarian through and through. The Son offered His blood to the Father through the Spirit. And what, how much more effect does this have on us? If animal blood could sanctify the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ do what? Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I want to take a quick look back at verses 8 and 10 that we talked about just a few minutes ago. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. The earthly things, the animal blood and the furniture in the temple could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Remember, just skin deep. No effect on the conscience. But since Jesus offered His blood for our redemption, listen, our consciences are purified from dead works. Now, if you somehow have missed my antics up here today and haven't heard a thing I've said, please, please, please don't miss that. The blood of Jesus purifies the consciences of those whom it redeems. What's that mean? Well, to purify means to cleanse from evil and to free from the guilt of sin. To cleanse from evil and to free from the guilt of sin. Let me ask you, believer. Is your conscience pure? Is your conscience cleansed from evil and free from the guilt of sin? And now you're bringing up your your yeah buts. Yeah, but, but. Take them to the dump. If Jesus Christ is your high priest, listen to me. Listen to what the Bible just said. Your conscience is purified. I don't feel like it is. Well, feel like it is. If Jesus is your high priest, your conscience is purified. Cleansed from evil and freed from the guilt of sin. Your conscience, my conscience, free from the guilt of sin. Free from the guilt of sin. Free from the guilt of sin. Well, I don't feel like I am. I don't feel like you are. 
Jesus' blood accomplished the purifying of his people's consciences. Accomplished it. Past tense. The consciences of the people of God are cleansed from evil and free from the guilt of sin and there's no need to do dead works to try to pacify ourselves or Him. There's no need for rituals and efforts to make ourselves feel better according to our efforts and our strivings. And so then what? So then the author says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? And note the order. Our consciences are purified so we can feel good about ourselves? Is that the goal? So we can stop beating ourselves up? No. The point is so that we might serve the living God. God purified our consciences so we could work full throttle without worry or concern of our standing before Him. That's settled! You're not doing what you're doing to try to earn favor with God. He showed you favor and redeemed you eternally and cleansed your conscience so that you could do it without worry. Is this enough? Am I good enough? Am I trying hard enough? Did I read enough today? Did I pray enough today? Did I witness enough today? Did I, did I, did I, did I? Stop the did I's. And look to Him and say, He did it. That's the rocket fuel to launch you into the outer atmosphere of service of God. Not your efforts to try to keep the ritual so that you might do something right here and there. God purified our conscience so we could work full throttle without worry or concern of our standing before Him. He made us clean so we could pull a pall and forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead and press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And also so we don't have to worry about failing, failing the course. Oh, I got a zero on that test. They're going to kick me out of the course. I'm going to fall by the wayside. Listen to me, Christian. Your conscience is cleansed for good and your redemption is eternal. No fear, no shame, no guilt, no sins, only perfect forgiveness due to the blood of Jesus, omnipotent power from the Holy Spirit and complete love from the Father. Conscience purified so that we might serve God. That's what our high priest did. And that's better. Now, I still, I'm, I'm looking at you. And I see you. And you're like, yeah, but not me. If your faith is in you, then yeah, not you. But if your faith is in Christ, yeah, you. Yeah. That's what our high priest did. How much more? How much more? There's plenty of messages left in Hebrews to explore that. Today we've got application from what we have seen. Three R's. R, it's a pirate application for me, me hearty. Ritual, relief, and rigorous. Ritual, relief, and rigorous. That's our application points. And again, those are just, what do we do with this? 
What do we do with it? Back to this passage for a second. Whoop, whoop. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open. As long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age, as long as the present age is here, we won't enter into the Holy of Holies. Okay? According to this arrangement, that old covenant arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Listen, we are far too often in self-imposed slavery to man-made religion. Rituals, regulations, boxes to check. And there is no power in it. No power in it. Pointless and useless. Rituals and regulations in this new covenant age only send people to hell. Even the best ones. Yeah, good. Listen, we do it. We submit ourselves to these things. Paul says to the Colossians, If with Christ you died the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. And look, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, which just means I don't do things, I don't do bad things. And severity to the body. But they are of no value. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And we submit ourselves to these things all the time. We live like we're in the old covenant. And it has no power. No power to save you, sanctify you, encourage you, help you at all. No value. No value. So why do we do it? Well, because... Grandma said that if you blank, then blank. Right. I remember one time, when I was little, so little I could stand up in the floorboard of the truck. Dad had went into the post office, me and my sister in the truck, and a song came on. It was like a banjo. And I'm like, hey, check this out. And I'm dancing, and my sister said, that's a religious song. And I'm like, ah! Scared to death that I danced to a religious song. Why? Because you don't dance to religious songs. Who said that? David didn't. I'll be more undignified than this. That's what I should have said. I'll be more undignified than this, sis. Check me out. I'll clap it to this joker. We do it because it is pounded into us. I grew up with it, y'all. A lot of y'all did too. And it has no value. No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You just keep wanting to do those things that you're saying I shouldn't do. Don't eat of this one tree. It looks good. Heck, it tastes good. 
It's going to make me wise. Why wouldn't I eat this? Because God said not to. Not because grandma said not to, or mama said not to. Or to why am I picking on the ladies? Daddy said not to. Grandpa said not to. Some of my upbringing coming in, y'all. Well, watch this, though. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's better. That's better than don't stop it, quit it. But I don't want to stop it, quit it. Do you want righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Well, then quit the ritual. Quit the regulations for the body that have no value. Just stop it. That's what Bob Newhart said, right? Stop it. Look that up. Bob Newhart, stop it. That's funny. Don't submit to the don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Seek the righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Rituals won't do it, but we know somebody that can. That's relief. We looked at ritual, now it's relief. But when Christ appeared. Listen to me, believer. With the removal of our sins from us, with the just penalty for those sins being paid by means of the blood of Jesus securing our eternal redemption, our consciences are purified. Free from the guilt of sin. So why do you feel so bad when you sin? Well, there's a thing called conviction. And that's a good thing. If God let you run that way and didn't discipline you, you ain't saved. So don't mistake conviction by the Holy Spirit for, oh, shucks, I should do better. Those are different things. Let let me give you, I'm not a formula guy, but let me give you a formula. Okay? I sin. I commit sin. So I got sin. Me plus sin. Equals what? Me plus sin equals worship. I'm like, okay. That's crossed a line. Good. Let's cross some lines today. I sin. I'm bad, I'm wrong, I'm yucky, I'm an idiot, I'm a dummy, I know I shouldn't do this. I sin. Father, that is sin. I am sorry and I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. I praise you that that sin has been paid for. I'll wear it no more. I just stepped in it and I don't smell like it. That's pretty good. Y'all write that down. Me plus sin equals worship. What if when you sinned, you looked to God and said, you have purified my conscience from what I just did? What if you looked to Jesus and said, you shed your blood, you shed your very young blood and offered it to the Father in the power of the Spirit so that I wouldn't feel the guilt Experience the guilt. Bear the guilt for what I just did. What if? I'm not saying go out and sin. 
Shall we continue in sin so that grace may be? Oh, it may never be. But I promise you this. Scripturally, I promise you this. You start to worship God when you sin, you'll start to sin less. You're like, nah, you crossed another line there. Good. With the removal of our sins from us, with the just penalty for them being paid by means of the blood of Jesus, securing our eternal redemption, our consciences are purified. Now let me ask you this. Do you know that, believer? Are you living with a purified conscience? I mean, really. Blood of bulls and goats, ashes of heifers couldn't do that for you. But Jesus did that for you. Am I saying you shouldn't feel bad about your sin? You shouldn't want it. It should make you feel, oh, why did I do that? Thank you, God, that I don't have to wallow in that. That there's not a penalty box that i got to spend a certain amount of time in before I can come to you and say I'm sorry and you accept it. I enter boldly into the throne room to receive grace in time of need. God, I sinned. Yes, it's sin and it was wrong. Thank you for purifying my conscience from the wrong that I just did. Thank you for paying the just penalty for that sin through the death, through the burial, through the resurrection, through the blood of Jesus. Thank you. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. We sang it in that song so many times this morning. We sang last week, I will trust in the cross of my Redeemer. I will sing of the blood that never fails, of sins forgiven, of conscience cleansed, of death defeated and life without end. We sang this week, and I too can come and wash all my sins away. You living that way? Romans 5, 6-11, we're almost done. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, how many times have we seen that this morning? Shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been, now have been, now have been justified by His blood. Much more. Shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There is therefore now. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I believe in that. And when your feelings tell you it's not true, tell your feelings to shut up. Get in the back seat, get in the trunk. We got somewhere to go, loser. And it ain't where you're taking me. Ritual relief and finally rigorous. Let me define rigorous for you. I had to look it up. I'm like, I think this works. Adhering strictly or inflexibly to a belief, an opinion, or a way of doing something. So if I really believe this, I want to be rigorous 
in what I do with it. I want to adhere strictly to my belief, to my way of doing what it means to live with a purified conscience. And, and what he said, the point was, he did that so that we could serve the living God. Lover of my soul, I want to live for you. I want to do the things that you've called me to do. I want to not do the things you've said I shouldn't do that are sinful, that are not helpful to me, that are an offense to your holiness. My conscience tells me those are not right. Your word and my conscience tell me that what you say is right. I want to do those things that are right. I want to be rigorous in it. I want to serve the living God with my life. If we are to be rigorous, to adhere strictly to the belief that our consciences are purified, then we are to serve, which means we are to do things and not do some things. You said, but you said not to do that. That's not what I said. I said those things don't earn you favor with God. Our service of and to God, listen to me, has to flow out of a purified conscience. I'm not doing these things to try to purify my conscience. Cart before the horse. Our service of and to God has to flow out of a purified conscience. I'm no longer running around checking boxes and keeping rituals to try to make God happy. He is pleased with me. Why? Because of the redemption secured by Jesus' blood and I am to rest in Him And operating from that rest, I am to serve God in the power that the Holy Spirit supplies. No more dead works, but in their place, pleasing sacrifices. Which is Romans 12, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And this is following the greatest expansive presentation of the gospel that we've got in the whole Bible. From Romans 1 through 11. So then, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern, that your conscience can discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what we're to be rigorous about. In the power that the Spirit supplies, knowing that our consciences are purified and our redemption is eternally secured. I'm not working to try to earn favor with God. I'm working because God has shown me favor. Now, I hate to use the book we're in as an application point, but this just sums it up so well. We're going to get there probably in a few weeks. Hebrews 10, and then we'll be done. The writer of Hebrews says, and again, he's reiterating something that we're talking about today. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, what are we supposed to do? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another in all the more. How much more as you see the day drawing there? Since we have confidence to approach God, let's encourage each other to do the things that God has equipped us and empowered us to do. Not worried about, is God going to use me? Is God going to be okay with me? Is he mad at me? He's not, Christian. But let me tell you this. If you're not a believer, if you haven't ran to Jesus for the sacrifice that he paid for your sins, the wrath of God abides on you. And you need to go to him and say, I'm a sinner and I need salvation from your wrath and I believe that the blood of Jesus purchased that for me. And then you run to believers and ask them to help you, teach you, encourage you, surround you, pray for you so that you might know the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, so that you might rigorously live for him. Let's do that for each other. Let's pray. Father, we can add nothing to what you have done. You have eternally secured our redemption through the perfect offering of our great high priest's own blood. You accepted that offering. You said it is good. It is sufficient. It is enough. May we say the same thing that you say. The same thing about our sin, that it is sin, and that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to take the guilt of that sin away from us. The blood of Jesus, Father, we do believe, is sufficient to take the guilt of our sin away from us. Thank you for purifying our consciences. Thank you for doing what no man-made thing could ever do. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for adopting us into your family. Thank you for dwelling with us. Now we are the dwelling place of God. And one day we will dwell with you for all eternity. And we look forward to that day and we do say, Come, Lord Jesus. And we ask what we ask, say what we say in his name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? We're going to stick to Hebrews for this benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.